This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Interesting, uh, interesting research about what Americans fear most. And when you think about it, it's the fears, they're... They're very much about what you can control or can't control, right? So if I can't control something, I might be more inclined to be afraid, to want to fix it. Um, And it's just interesting. Also, the paranormal stuff he was getting into, it was also very, very fascinating, I think, because there's 40% of Americans believe that uh, places can be haunted by spirits, Okay, And more than a fourth, according to the Chapman survey, uh, believe that the living and the dead can communicate with each other. 20% of Americans believe that both aliens visited Earth in the ancient past and that dreams can foretell the future. Isn't that interesting? One of the surveys, uh, the survey also shed light on certain characteristics of people who believe in the paranormal. And Ed went over this a little bit. He said, people with the highest levels of paranormal beliefs have the following traits. Low levels of church attendance, non-white, Catholic, no college degree, female, unmarried, living in the Northeast. Isn't that interesting? They, like, they can target paranormal beliefs that, that directly. But it's uh, it's fascinating. In fact, um, I recently just found uh, a, a really interesting um, article that was talking about a dead woman. So a young woman died in an accident in China. And there's a, there's a belief, you know, you got to get married. So listen to what happened. Uh, three people were detained for attempting to sell the corpse of a young woman to be used in a ghost bride ritual. And what they were doing is the official uh, uh, Xinhua News Agency reported that the main suspect, a man aged 72, said he had heard about the death of a young woman in a nearby village in Shanxi province and thought of selling the corpse to relatives of a single dead man. So... A single dead man should be married to a single dead woman. And the the price was 25,000 yuan. Is that how you say that? $4,000. Anyway, they, uh, they were, I guess, uh, the main suspect and two accomplices pretended to be relatives of the woman and negotiated a sell price of $4,000 with the buyer. And while they were raiding a village tomb for the body last weekend, their plot was scuttled by villagers who caught them in the act and alerted police. The reason behind the ritual is to ward off bad luck, especially with dying while single. And the practice reportedly extends back centuries. It persists in more rural areas, but it still isn't something, uh, you know, it's, it's still a belief system. So one of the reasons your fears may matter and what uh, we were just learning from Ed Day is the fact that you might want to start taking some of your traditions, some of your values or your beliefs and just evaluating them, you know, basing them on something more modern doesn't make it more accurate, but um, it's try, try to understand the theory behind it. Try to dig a little deeper into what's going on. 
instead of just raiding a tomb. Interesting stuff, huh? That's why fears matter. It also, those fears, by the way, make it so we see what we want to see. We hear what we want to hear. Many of the arguments that I try to help couples resolve are generally coming out of fear. And uh, if, if you want to conquer the conversation, you got to conquer the fear a bit. So also we could take in a little bit more data, right? Usually when our, we're talking to our partner, every conversation is not life or death. It doesn't need to be the thing that terrifies you. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. Uh, a little coach's corner for you here. Isn't it interesting that the, the strengths become the weaknesses? So uh, over evolution of the, ma- of the body, we, we needed certain traits to survive. And the body learned. And, you know, if you were able to survive long enough to procreate and have children, those genes could be handed down. And now look at the curveball we've got because we were able to run and sweat and, you know, rehydrate. Our body started craving salts and water and fluids. Now all of a sudden that has turned into, hey, let's go get some fries and a Diet Coke. (laughs) Not good. Or fries and a Coke. And now all of a sudden your brain loves the sugar because it wants as much Sugar on board as it can get. Your brain loves the salt. And now we have to deal with it. It used to save our lives, and now we don't need to chase an animal and run and sweat and perspire for hours. So um, how do we handle it now? Do you know how many times I've had people say, well, I mean, I know I've got this physical problem. I mean, I know it. I know. I've been anxious and depressed my entire life. I know it. But I don't want to get medicine. I don't want it. But what you're battling isn't just a weakness. You're battling evolutionary genes that are in you that have made you be a really uh, maybe tense, anxious person so you wouldn't get, you know, snuck up on by a wild animal or a predator. You have that worry. That's in you. That's not going away. And so as the good doctor told us, you can either regulate it away, you know, by having more regulation on what we can do, what we can't do, more regulation on our mental health industries, or we could also just, I guess, use behavior change, which I have a lot of people want to get over anxiety, but they don't know how and they don't get therapy and they don't read books about it. Or eventually you're going to need to let science in. Somehow we need to break down a little bit, I think, of the belief that science is against us instead of science may be there to be the valuable bridge to to bridge our our past and our future i mean and a lot of the people are god-fearing people that you know they don't they don't think they need dr- medicine and drugs to fix something but god also gave you science right he also gave you you know insight the ability to learn and to read and to think he gave you choice and agency so if we're going to, you know, invoke God into the argument about how we handle our evolution and our realities, then let's involve him in everything. There are scientists that are deeply prompted and moved by a God. So let's make choices and let's not do it at the expense of our health. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. You know, one of the biggest victims of this new age of information 
and uh, technology is going to be the relationship, right? And as a relationship coach, uh, I do believe it's something we need to pay close attention to. So it will be today's topic of the Coach's Corner. How do we how do we close the closeness gap? Many people are struggling um, feeling close to another person. They, they they feel lonely personally, and uh, you know interpersonally they feel like they just aren't close to their partner to their kids. Um, it's hard when everyone's sitting looking at their phones and no one's connecting and talking. You might start to feel. Like you don't matter, that you are irrelevant. And um, there's – it is a plague quite honestly and, and yet it's something that we, we can fix. But like our good guest Andrew Merle was just saying, you might need to make some choices like the choice to put the phone away. And that's that's easier said and I say it and every time I say it, I notice that I, I still have a hard time putting my phone away. Because the phone makes it so I don't need to be vulnerable. I don't need to talk to anybody. I'm tired. Just once I pull it out, everyone kind of leaves me alone. But some of that then fosters this sense of loneliness. And uh, one of the things, there's a great book out there that I would highly recommend um, uh, called Stop Being Lonely. And it's um, uh, the Kira, Kira somebody. Let me find, look up her name. But it's in the book. Um, one of the ideas behind the concept of stop being lonely is what we really need to do is start to feel more um, more of an ability to get to understand the people around us. We really have to kind of step in and get uh, to understand who we are married to, who we are living with. Uh, Kira Asatryan is the author of the book, Stop Being Lonely, Three Simple Steps to Developing Close Relationships and Deep – or Close Friendships and Deep Relationships. But one of the interesting things she teaches is uh, don't just assume you understand the person you're with. And I did this yesterday with a, with a couple where I had them identify on a list of positive traits and negative traits um, what are their top you know, eight – you know, positive ways that they see themselves and what are some of the negative ways they see themselves that, that they in – their, in their head, in their heart of hearts, they really – they feel this way. Uh, they, they, and, and basically, this couple had been arguing about a situation and um, we did this activity and then I had them turn to each other and talk about what they found. One person's uh, – one of his top traits was loyalty. Another person's top trait, the female's top trait was – um, just just uh, com- compassion and, um, you know, and, and just a sense of compassion for others. And what ends up happening is uh, the, the male's negative trait was stubbornness and the female's negative trait was confusion. So what ends up happening in their relationship is a lot of times the, the wife is compassionately serving her children while the husband is lonely and loyal and wondering why she isn't more loyal to him. And then they fight. And what was amazing is, is I had them start identifying how they both see themselves and how their partner sees themselves. It changes the entire discussion. He's not being stubborn because he hates her. He's being stubborn because that's just his weakness. And she doesn't get confused about not loving him or loving the kids. I mean, that confusion is not coming because she doesn't love him. It's coming because she's so compassionate. She's going to always take care of the one that's in the need. 
Well, then he has to create a need for her to be able to be compassionate. The power of if you want to be um, more connected to others is you've got to understand where they're coming from, from their frame of reference. If they're trying to do something and they want loyalty, you need to understand that. If they want more compassion, you need to understand that. Understanding somebody is the antidote to creating a closer relationship. So a little challenge for you. Put down the phones. Go try to understand each other. Make sense? We'll take a break. We'll be back for more of the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Man, honored to have uh, with us today author Captain Ronald Fry. He is the author of the book Hammerhead Six, How Green Berets Waged an Unconventional War Against the Taliban to Win in Afghanistan's Deadliest or Deadly Pesh Valley. The Pesh Valley is uh, nicknamed the Valley of Death. And this unit, however, um, has, has saw some pretty uh, unprecedented success in that valley. Captain Ronald Fry was the leader of a Green Beret Special Forces unit, and uh, the, the unit's name was Hammerhead Six. But they used unconventional methods. We appreciate you, Captain, being here. Captain Ronald Fry. Thanks for having me. Great to have you. And talk to us about, um, I mean, you, you, this is the valley. This this Pesh Valley now is the one we've heard so much about um, because because of, the, like, the movie and the, the, the book, I believe, Lone Survivor, where one man left, lost how many people in his battle? So they were a team of four, and three of the four were killed uh, in a firefight. And then another 19 special operators were killed trying to rescue him. And this very valley, which is now so hostile, everybody has heard so much about, you you were there in that very same space. But your team, you somehow managed to make it different. How? Well, you know, it's interesting. The Pesh Valley was known from, I mean, hundreds of years ago. I mean, even the Afghans, it's, it's legendary for them, is the Russians were never able to control it. Um, the British were never able to control it. The Taliban wasn't able to control it. I mean, these are wild <laughs> tribesmen. You're not controlling this area. Yeah, no, they're they're very independent and 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 fierce fighters. And uh, you know, we knew that after the Taliban had been defeated, that Al Qaeda had a training camp in there, and there was a lot of bad guys that had just taken sanctuary there. And we tried a lot of different methods, or the U.S. had, and and had no success in penetrating that valley to get those guys. And so we were given the the mission to do an experiment and go live with the people and work with them and build an army from the local villagers to basically accomplish that same, wow. that same goal. But you were, you're an elite special forces, a team, green beret, bad to the bone, trained to the core. And then they say, Hey, go, go in bed basically with the, the, uh, the, the locals basically hang out, get to know them, be their friend. You might need ammo when you need it. <laughs> Shoot when you have to. Yeah. But other than that, use unconventional methods, which include what? So unconventional, warf- unconventional warfare, by definition, is working by, with, and through the indigenous population. So from all the special operations, everybody's great at shooting. Everybody's yeah. great at those direct action missions. But the niche that the Green Berets have is actually working with guerrillas, either creating a guerrilla army oh, wow. or working with the locals to yeah. basically – 
you know, so a 12-man team can lead two or 300 indigenous soldiers in a very economic, efficient, and, uh, and effective uh, group. So going there was kind of the core of what special forces do, but nobody had done it like we were about to do it for like 20, oh, yeah. 30 years. And, and, you, and, and just to, I guess, prove the point, you did it, you were successful, and what happened? What was the outcome that had never been seen before? So the, so the, the biggest outcome was those people actually accepted us. So they viewed me as the captain of these Americans as in some way as a king or a warlord yeah, and in another way as their guest. And so we actually incorporated ourselves into their society, helped them adjudicate like internal struggles and then worked with them to actually deny sanctuary to the enemy in that valley. Because they didn't want them there either and they didn't want all this pro- all these problems. Yeah. I mean they, these people were causing them problems. Right. Um, but, you know – they're always fighting each other, so that's just kind of mm-hmm. par for the course for them. But for us to come in there and say, hey, look, we'll, we'll work with you. We'll create a certain level of stability, but we want to do it on your terms with mm. your local tribal customs. Yeah. And let's work together and make this a place better for your kids. And, what, and I guess it's interesting because you didn't go in over them where you could have just tried to take position. Yeah. I mean you had the bigger guns. That is correct. But, so you really kind of went in almost – Submissive but strong. Yes. And, and you know what's, what's interesting is even when we were going in there, we didn't fully understand how we were going to win these people over. Yeah, sure. And the first – you know, all the village villages have a council called a shura, and it will be the senior guys from, from the village. And then the valley will all submit one or two people from each village to a shura for each district or area. Yeah, like a council, area council. Yeah, it was very <clears> – <throat> very traditional. And uh, the first council we had, I got an inspiration. Like they asked, you know, how long are you going to be here? Like what is your role here? Yeah. And I remember just saying, you know what? We're here for as long as you need us here. Like we're here to help you secure your valley so that your kids and grandkids can have a better place. Interesting. And our goals and your goals are aligned. So when you don't need us here, we'll, we'll be gone. And to see the shock on their faces that, well, this is a guy we can work with. Right. It was well, interesting. Well, and you're bringing up their grandchildren. I mean, their children and their – like you're saying, this is about your future. This isn't about us. We're not going to be here. Yeah. We want to give it back to you. Get out of here. And those are institutions they understand. Yeah, like it's all about clans and family mm-hmm. and tribes. And so when you talk about you know, every decision they're making today is about how it's going to affect their posterity. And that also includes do they support the Taliban? Do yeah. they support the Americans? Because they're looking at – not four or five years down the road. They're looking at how do these decisions affect my village and my family for wow. the next 30 years. Yeah. And, um, and then I guess it's just really you have to then deliver. You have to have conversations, yes. get ideas, and then you have to go deliver on those ideas. How did you get – how many people were on your team? So I had a 12-man A team, okay. um, which is the traditional size of a special forces team. And then we actually had a platoon of infantry uh, started out from the 10th Mountain Division and then from the Marines that helped us secure our camp while we were getting it built up. Okay. And um, that was the smallest footprint the Americans ever had in that valley was just 60 Americans. And there was peace. And there was peace. Which is amazing. So, so what I guess for efficiency's sake, being unconventional, highly efficient. Yes. Yeah, very much. If you, know. you, if you could, I guess, forge those relationships. But yeah. it's also – I guess you also don't have – you don't have an expert that can come in and tell you how to do it with every different, you know, tribe, every different group. You had to figure it out. Yeah, and that was that was the frustrating thing is you'd think, 
I mean, this is what I thought, is you'd have anthropologists or somebody that right. could say, Experts. hey, guys, you're going into this area. I mean, my team was trained for Asia. We all speak spoke Asian languages. Oh, really? <laughs> it was just that the, you know, after 9-11, it was so overwhelmed that we got sent to the Middle East. So we're working with interpreters and stuff. Um, but we probably spoke 10 Asian languages mm-hmm. amongst the team. And so we kind of expected that the Army would provide anthropologists or some sort of experts to tell us about these tribes, about their traditions, et cetera. And they didn't. And so we kind of went in there and we're kind of like figuring it out. And uh, Yeah, you, that is interesting. I guess now we probably have a lot of experts on Afghanistan. Yes. But, but yes, before, much more. But before not. So do, do you think the mere fact that you, you all had uh, kind of an Asian language, probably an Asian history background, did that help you? Because that's a very kind of Zen, calm, Buddha, Buddhist approach to – because this approach seemed very – Counter-American, almost anti-non-American. Yeah, it did. I think, uh, to be honest, I think the biggest impact or the biggest thing that helped us see what we should do was the fact that we had uh, four return missionaries on the team. Did you really four LDS return missionaries yep. that are used to like knocking doors, yeah. but not in Pesh? pesh. And, and, it was, and it was weird because you know I talk about it in in the book, but there was a dinner we had where we had a police chief and some of his soldiers and some Americans, and we're all eating on the roof of his house. And the, it's a full moon. It's it's beautiful. And one of the infantry soldiers said, I've never done anything like this before. And my buddy, Scott Jennings, was like, what? He's like, well, eat with the locals and stuff. And he's like, oh, this is just like being a missionary. Oh my! God. And that's when I was like, oh, my gosh, this, this really this is, is like, like being that. a missionary. And so the whole building relationships of trust, yeah. trying to understand what makes those people tick before you try and share what you're trying to accomplish. Right. I think that drove a lot of how we were able to connect with the people and get them to to not just – we weren't trying to manipulate them. Right. To get them to really feel that our goals of being there and their long-term goals were, were aligned and working with us was in their best interest. Oh, sure. Well, I mean – and we're all children of God. Yeah. Like, I mean Muslims and Christians sitting down to have bread. Yeah. How, how symbolic – but in the most dangerous valley, the valley of death. Yeah. I mean it, this is amazing. It was. It was very – it was very um, surreal. I bet. But you know the interesting thing about those people – the Pashtun tribe, you know, they were only converted to Islam a few hundred years ago, and oh. it was by the sword. Yeah. And so they consider themselves, you know, I'm 5,000 years of Pashtun with all of those traditions of their tribe. That were taken away. Yeah, and, and secondary, they're Muslim. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, they, some of their, their traditions are so, I don't want to say um, common sense. Like if somebody wrongs them, they, uh, they go by either the law of Moses— or the gospel. They have the option of choosing revenge or choosing to forgive. Take your pick. And so it's, you know, so if you've wronged them, and we give a couple examples where we were the ones on the wrong. Yeah. We had to go to the families and ask for forgiveness, knowing that they could choose that they wanted an eye for an eye or that they were going to take the higher road and forgive. Holy cow. And it, but at the same time, it was like, it made sense. Yeah. Like it was very healing because you knew once they made that decision, it was, it was done. done. It was water under the bridge. Everybody gets to move forward. Well, and you gave them, I guess, agency. You gave them their choice. This is your – I guess that shows yeah. that you're in. Yeah. No, it was – and I think the fact that we respected that that was their custom yeah. instead of saying we're the Americans, we do it our way really helped us get in with them. And when they knew that we really respected it, it, um, it got us the inside track. And so some of the mistakes we made were actually opportunities for us to – to build build that bridge between us yeah. and them, it's oh, and it's sad because it worked. 
Yeah. But it's yeah. it hasn't been replicated very often. I mean, they haven't been looking at it. It seems like this is a great lesson for everything that's going on today. Yeah. No, it was – you know, we knew it was unique back then. And then we all came home. And a lot of us – you know, some of the guys stayed in the Army. Some of the guys got out. And then we look back over – you know, as the years went on and, you know, you got Restrepo. You got everything going on in the Korangal. You got Lone Survivor. You got Wanit, which is the worst single battle in the entire war. That was the one I was thinking Which about. was yeah. just a couple miles up from our camp. And we would go do meetings up there with two Americans and ten Afghans. We felt no threat. Right. And all that stuff happened in the same exact area where we had had such success. That's kind of what prompted the book is we had learned so many lessons and we thought we passed them on, but clearly we hadn't. Yeah. And so the book shares our, you know, our mistakes, our successes and stuff because guys are going to be doing the same thing in Syria. Oh, no, totally. And, and they already are, right? Yeah, and, no. I mean, we're, and we're still doing the same thing in the United States. I mean, we still yes. don't get it, right? We still don't quite get how to, how to get into a close-knit tribal unit. I'm like thinking of Ferguson, Baltimore, even yes. even you know what's going on in Flint or in yeah Flint, Michigan, where we still don't know how to fix certain problems that is by true. understanding where people are coming from. Let's let's come back more with Captain Ronald Fry again. The book is Hammerhead Six: How Green Berets Waged an Unconventional War Against the Taliban to Win in Afghanistan's Deadliest Pesh Valley. Stick with us, folks. We'll be right back. More right here on the Matt Townsend Show. Everybody to the Matt Townsend Show in studio with us, Captain Ronald Fry, who uh, was a, a Green Beret captain over a unit with twelve Green Berets. Hammerhead Six was the name of their unit, and um, he wrote a book called Hammerhead Six: How Green Berets Waged an Unconventional War Against the Taliban to Win in Afghanistan's Deadliest Pesh Valley. And uh, no, uh, no combat death, no combat injury. A uh, couple injuries, no death. No death, which is really unheard of in this valley. <laughs> yeah, yes. I think we're the only unit that had that experience. I mean, will. amazing. And and when, during the break, you were telling me something that this wasn't like – this wasn't this wasn't just Americans trying to teach uh, Afghanistan uh, – Afghanistanis what to do. This was – this was Christians trying to – trying to basically convince tribal – Pesh, what do you call them? No, Pashtuns. Pashtuns, who had already been oppressed by Muslims 500 years ago or whatever, to fight against Pashtuns. Correct. Not to fight against Muslims, not to fight against some other tribe, but to fight against people in their own tribe that were members of the Taliban. That, that's right. That's right. And, and that's the difficult thing if you just – the concept of, you know, you got 12 – you know, white, white Christian Americans, Americans showing up in this valley that, for one, they hate foreigners. Yeah. Um, that's the only time they unite is to Well, they've had foreigners. Russia there. They've had, I mean, this has gone on forever. Oh, yeah. I mean, even the gang government was afraid to go into the Pesh Valley. Just, <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, we would joke about it's, it's, you know, people refer to Afghanistan as being the Wild West. This is like the wildest part of the Wild West. But, you know, for us to go in there and actually win them over and, can, and basically tell them, hey, look. Our goals and your goals are aligned. 
we need you to help us fight against your cousin Johnny, mm. who's got the same religion, same ethnic ties, family ties, but his participation in the Taliban is bad for your family, your village, and your valley. And to get them to realize that what we were selling was better than what the Taliban was yeah. selling was a huge feat. But it, we proved that it was possible. Well, and then – and put on a uniform. We'll train you up and actually fight him. Yeah. That I was, mean that's even – and that's huge. It, it was huge. And you know, when we actually recruited you – know, we got the task that we had, to, we had to raise a local army. Well, some of our predecessors in Vietnam – they did the same thing, but sometimes the Viet Cong would get into that force. Next thing you know, you're training your enemy, uh-huh. and he attacks you from within. So one of our te- problems was how do we choose which guys to train? Because we didn't want to train a bunch of Taliban guys, and then right. they used the opportunity to kill us. Right. And so we did one of those councils with all the elders. We told them this is this is what we're trying to do, but we can only do it with your support. So we want your sons, your nephews. To work with us, people that we can trust, and they need to show up with their own guns, their own ammunition, and a letter from you. And oh my heavens! Within a week, we had 110 soldiers that came with weapons and letters from their from their fathers. Well, and that were politically positioned to defend what yes. the status quo is. And so when they came there, they came there on an oath from their own father and village that they would fulfill their responsibilities with the Americans mm-hmm. for the betterment of the valley. And so we had guys that were committed, not just a working with the Americans, but for accomplishing what they viewed as the future of the Pesh Valley. Yeah. And so we had them totally bought in, and, um, and those guys were fantastic. Oh, I bet. I mean, and I, are they still active? Are, do you know? Are they still fighting? Are they still, but, or were they just overrun again? Well, some of them were incorporated in later years into the Afghan National Army. So we kind of had an irregular force of, I don't want to call them mercenaries. They were local fighters that we yeah. gave uniforms to and we led and trained and eventually some of those would get incorporated into the, the, um, the National Army out of Kabul. Um, and some of them in later years would be killed. Mm. And some of them would, um, you know, would go the way of, you know, whatever. Just quit or, or I guess switch teams. But Yeah, and, and I think that's part of the disappointment from us is what we did and, and the success we had wasn't picked up on, which like we talked about was the gist of writing the book was to pass on the lessons. Well, and this seems like leadership 101, right? This is – this is what leadership is, is winning them over one at a time, a conversation at a time, understanding their needs, helping them understand the opportunity and winning them over. I, but I guess then not everybody that – not every Green Beret is a leader. I mean they're a leader in military. They're a leader in fighting. They're a leader in you know being a tactical unit. But you got to also know how to lead people. Yeah, and you know, in, in, the, in the U.S. Army or the U.S. Defense Department arsenal, the Green Berets are – are trained and are the best at doing this, mm-hmm. but not all are equal and not all see the vision. Yeah, that's exactly what you're saying. Yeah. You're all trained for months to go in and, and kind of build an army yep. from the locals, but being able to do it and say, I mean, and being able to do it this way without, with, I, I mean, really you're involving their heart, you're involving their purpose, their mission, their passion. Yeah. And, you know, going in and, and finding, you know, the Taliban or Al Qaeda, quite honestly, and just putting a bullet through their head, it's very tangible, it's very measurable, it's, it's very, hey, that's what we're there to do, yeah, it's, and done. that's kind of what everybody wants to focus right. on, is to make that country a place where they could never exist again, and the only way we can do that is getting the Afghans to do it. <clears throat> much more difficult, much less measurable, yeah. but long term, it's the only way that we're going to win over there. That's and, why That's why the president keeps saying, 
you're not going to win this just military militarily. You you've got it's a political thing, but really this was this is you have to win it on the ground with the people. Yes. Cuz otherwise the minute you're gone Someone else will pop up and take the seat of the one you just killed. And the that's, next, that's right. And I mean, the it next. seems like every time we smash a cockroach, it gets replaced by two. Yeah, that's right. And so, unless we make it where the cockroaches don't want to go, you know, they'll always come right. back. And right. we can we can keep smashing them for the next fifty years, but they're never going to go away. What have you learned? Because this, what have you learned as a leader? To me, this book really should be read by the leaders of companies of organizations, because this is about. This is about changing people, working with people. Yeah, and I, I think a couple of lessons I took from it that I apply in my own business um, and leading teams and stuff is, for one, you have to – you do have to understand people don't want your goals pushed upon them. Yeah, They need to feel that what they're doing is 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 their goals. It's better for them. And so you you know you don't manipulate, but you got to align the goals so people don't want to just work for a you know ten bucks an hour and be your slave. Like you got to align it where people feel like their future is better working in that aspect. And the other thing is when you put out certain standards, you put out certain um, direction that you're going to want, and you run into tough decisions. I ran into some decisions that I look back on today, and they were tough. And we had to make decisions based on principles. And sometimes I thought personal risk was was great but they were the right decisions mm. and what i found immediately after that is the respect of the people that i was leading and the respect of the people that saw that i had taken a tough decision all of a sudden you you quadruple the respect they have and now you have so much more capital to move the whole organization forward and so in some ways accepting mistakes or accepting difficult situations and then making the tough decisions that might not be popular, might not be the easy ones, that's what defines a leader. Well, like going back to the family that one of your men have offended yeah. and be willing to take the eye for eye or replace the goat or whatever that's, Yeah, whatever you've done. But I guess too that's what – that that integrity, that character is what convinces everyone that you're legit. You, yes. you end up buying more trust. That's right. And, and knowing that we did not have to, we had the most guns in the valley. We had, you know, we had F-18s flying overhead. We did not have to apologize to the family when we had wronged them, but it was the right thing to do. And the Afghan soldiers we were leading, when they saw we were willing to be humble and abide by their culture and show that we put our money where our mouth was as far as we respect you people, yeah. it, it was the right thing to do. And that gained us so much respect and their willingness to follow us. And take a bullet for us. Oh yeah, was was greatly increased. That is huge. I mean, really, that that is, that's that's what we're lacking. I mean, I think here we're trying to choose a president, and in the end, this is all we need. We need leaders that understand, that listen, that truly listen, that don't just listen yeah. because it's an election year, but that are there, that are listening and willing to throw themselves on the sword if they have to. Yeah, and, and no, don't tell us what we want to hear. Right. Tell us what we know is right and then show us that you're willing to sacrifice for what is right, and that will make us want to follow. Oh, yeah, and all day long. That's a great – is that the major lesson? Give us what, – what's the one thing when people read the book um, – and again, the name of the book – and you got to go get the book for heaven's sakes. This is – I mean how often do you get to read so many cool stories but also so many leadership examples? Remember, the name of the book is Hammerhead Six, How Green Berets Waged an Unconventional War Against the Taliban to Win in Afghanistan's Deadly Pesh Valley. What's the number one thing you want us to take away, Captain? 
you know, one for the for the military and and business leaders is if you put push put the mission and your people above all else, above yourself and your own career, you'll be successful. Um, the second one in in as far as unconventional warfare, as far as because all the conflicts we're dealing with right now, oh, this is the way to do it. Yeah, um, it's really we have to understand these people and we have to align our goals with them and make true allies, not just people that we need to use for a year or two while we accomplish our goals, but really make true grassroots allies with these people and they will be our friends for the next hundred years yeah and that's what we need to be doing right now is not alienating these people but finding the ones that are willing to fight with us truly making them allies and take advantage of that yeah and again it's one tiny special forces unit from draper that's right it's like it's awesome i mean to me that's what's so cool about it is we could totally this is the new method of war, I think. This is the new way you change, especially like the Middle East. I guess this would have worked anywhere. In Vietnam? Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny where you know our army is built to defeat another army. Yeah. That's what it's built for, and right. we need it for that right. because nobody's going to invade the United States because we have the best military in the world. But in most of the conflicts that we've ever experienced, even back to the first one we ever dealt with after the revolution – being the you know the war with the Barbary states, we used unconventional warfare and had a small group of Americans leading Get in. Arab yeah. troops, gr- Greeks, and all these people to fight the Tripolitans, and so we've used it effectively for the for the history of our country. But we always forget, yeah, and we and we don't go back to it. Oh, good stuff. Again, thanks for being here. Thank you. This is huge, Appreciate huge, it. huge learning. Uh, Captain Ronald Fry. Um, again, the book Hammerhead Six. Go find the book, read the book, talk to people about it, uh, use it in your business. Leadership, folks, it's, it's, this is real leadership, right? People could die uh, in the Pesh Valley, and, uh, and yet safety was had by simply understanding one another. We'll take a break. Folks, come right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Aha! Is that not what... That's the key Captain Ronald Fry just taught us. I mean, that's leadership 101. Sure, we can go in and just carpet bomb them. But you know what? You don't win anybody. You don't win a change in the hearts and the minds of people by just using force especially in the Middle East right now. And for anybody that tells you it's not going to work, it already has. In the book Hammerhead 6, it worked. They went in there, not one fatality. Not one, I mean, and they would go. They, I mean, there were times you still had to take on the enemy, right? But they were also able to get, you know, tribal members to fight against their own tribe. Uh, who people that were were already members of the Taliban, but from their tribe. Can you imagine that? That is the equivalent of going into, you know, uh, it's it, and you saw it. We saw it in Ferguson. We saw it in Baltimore, where 
it was kind of the outsiders and the insiders in the fight. And there wasn't enough, you know, mixing and understanding and, and sharing of what the real problems were. Even in Ferguson, you, you saw some of the leaders that were eventually brought in from the state, the state trooper, uh, the African-American trooper that went in and could create some safety for everybody involved. He did it. He went in and he became that change. We need more of that in our country. So when you're thinking about leadership, folks, think about a guy like Captain Ronald Fry. And when you're listening to the politicians, are these the people that really are going to be able to go in and understand you from your frame of reference? Have they really been doing this? Or do they just pop up around this time of year? Fascinating, fascinating stuff. We're going to take a break, folks. That's hour number one of the Matt Townsend Show. Remember, our goal is to help you get real information, real solutions to deal with your real-world problems. Uh, one of those problems, by the way, is to lead a healthier life. And uh, Captain Ronald Fry just taught us that. We'll be right back, folks. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. I am a big uh, proponent of marriage. I think it's incredible. I think it's great. I think it's the one of the great fundamental uh resources we have in our lives to grow healthier, happier families, healthier, happier uh, people. It's, it's, it's essential to our lives and to a healthy life. And as our researcher just taught us, uh, Dr. Christy Williams, in the lower economic strata of, of our society, all marriages are not created equal, right? So if, if a 19 to 24-year-old person gets pregnant Historically, we'd say you got to marry. You got to marry the man. Marry the man that you know makes it legit. Now we've got a legitimate thing going on here, and then all of a sudden we suppose that that would then all of a sudden pull them out of the financial hole. And the problem is, it's not the reality they're finding. They're finding that it doesn't necessarily increase or create long-term health for the mother in economic uh, with economic struggles. So. It's, it might be a myth to just automatically push marriage. Now, we should probably be pushing, well, let's not get pregnant, right? That should be pushed. But again, because of whatever reasons and accidents or, you know, things happen that all of a sudden yet you're pregnant <laughs> – one of the things we probably ought to do is make sure we're evaluating each situation one on one. What is the 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 educational and the mental and the intellectual abilities of the people involved that are going to be parenting? What are the uh, financial implications? What what is their earning ability? What educational level have they attained? What resources do they have available to them? It's these are all important parts of the decision, and. There are people that would love to adopt if you want to give the child up. There are parents begging, praying, crying for opportunities to adopt. And so um, marriage may not always be the answer in those situations because, again, who is the father 
what are the what are the opportunities of the father being able to make it? What is the father's support level at getting out? So, you know, it used to make more sense. And I think it used to make more sense as a solution because we were in a different culture. We were in a different environment where we could just say, you know, you ought to stay married or you ought to get married if you get pregnant. And that made sense in, in smaller town kind of Christian supported cultures and environments because you had a tight knit group maybe more around you. But in inner city, difficult, financially strained situations, it doesn't necessarily lead to health. Uh, and if it doesn't lead to health for the mother, it probably won't lead to health for the child. It might lead to abuse and, and other situations. So be careful when we think about our answers from 20, 30 years ago being the only answer today. Um, there are more options and more choices that are healthy um, that, again, there are people that would love to raise your child in a, in a marriage um, if, if that has to happen as well. So let me give you some other things we want to blow up, a few other myths about marriage that we want to support and blow up. Um, remember, I'm a relationship coach. I'm a marriage coach. I, I work with couples every day, thousands a year, teaching them how to strengthen their marriage. I'm not anti-marriage. I am a, I am a realist, though. And um, to think that it's the answer, it, sometimes it's not. I mean, sometimes the answer for everybody is not to go to college either. Sometimes the answer is to get to work, right? Sometimes the answer is... Um, you know, there's it needs to be customized to what you're going through. Another myth here, that your true love will automatically know what to say and do to make you happy. I'm going to go with no. I'm going to go with no on that. Um, because think about it. I don't even know what I truly want to be happy. So how on earth is my wife supposed to know that? You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. We got to be real about what what is a realistic thing that we could be doing and a realistic uh, expectation in my relationship is the the reality is, is if I want my wife to know something, I need to tell her. If I'm too afraid to tell her, then that's just not going to work. You need to go by based on what we're communicating, what we're sharing with each other. Healthy marriages have the ability to share. Uh, another um, interesting you know, myth is that having kids might bring couples closer together. <laughs> Some of the latest research shows that having children actually increases uh, or decreases marital satisfaction, but it increases family satisfaction. So as a family, you're getting healthier. You like what you're doing. Things are happening. Your family life's getting better because you're having these children. But a lot of times these children are going to take your time away from each other. So the only way to actually make a couple work better after having kids together is to work on it and to put your couple and your marriage relationship first. Thank you. You put it first and then all of a sudden, bada boom, bada bing, whatever you're focusing on is going to grow. If you focus on your relationship, your marriage, your marriage will get better with children. If you focus only on your children, your marriage will probably suffer. Um, uh, let's do one more and then we'll take a break. Um, differences in your marriage will ruin your marriage. Fact is not true. Differences are actually essential to a healthy relationship. 
just like, you know, uh, potential infections and issues in our environment are better for your for your immunization, for your uh, immunology, your ability for your immune system to be strengthened. You need a resistance, right? You need to have something fighting against you. The same is true in our marriages. Whenever somebody tells me we never fight, I don't think, oh, they're healthy. I immediately think, well, how? Is it that you don't talk? Is it that you don't care? Is it that you have everything exactly in common? Um, that usually doesn't happen. There's a point where you somebody has a different opinion. But at some point, differences don't kill your marriage. Actually, differences give you opportunities to get stronger and better in your marriage. Uh, thank you. And another myth that we've got to blow up. We'll take a break, come back, continue this coaching corner, give you a few more myths about marriage that we need to uh, really focus and deal with. Stick with us, folks. Helping you uh, love stronger. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, to The Matt Townsend Show. Hey, um... Another little uh, myth for you as we're debunking some of the myths about uh, marriage. Um, we've kind of already talked about the fact that, uh, you know, in your marriage, kids can bring happiness, but they also can bring dissension and division. So it depends on what you're focusing on. That's one merit myth we got to blow up. Another myth is that uh, marriage means you're going to have less sex, less <laughs> sex in your relationship. But according to researchers at the Kinsey Institute, um, they basically found that couples that were married um, are having more sex and they're actually having better sex as they would rate it than those couples that are single. We kind of think that our single friends that are uh, you know, engaging in sex are so much happier. But uh, 43% said that of the singles um, – Women who were ages between the ages of 25 and 29 reported having uh, uh, fewer uh, sex, uh, ha- having sex fewer times than those of their married friends of the same age. So that's you know pretty interesting, pretty interesting little myth debunked. Um, another uh, interesting thing we talked about a little bit is that happy couples don't argue. The research actually does show that uh, the healthiest couples actually do have a healthy dose of arguments. It's it's not whether you argue or not that makes the difference. It's how you discuss things that is the real key that we need to pay attention to. Uh, many people have a marriage myth belief that being married is the same as cohabitating. Not true, folks. Not true. There is a big dis- d- uh, division between those that are married and living together, and those that are cohabitating and living together. And the researchers said, believe it or not, that those that are cohabitating aren't going to last as long as those that are married, simply because they have a commitment. People that would choose to cohabitate might already have an aversion to getting married, and that very sign may be meaning they're less uh, willing to commit. Bing! There you go, folks. Just a few of the myths about marriage and children uh, and communication debunked for you. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll take a break. Our goal is to help you love stronger. I think we accomplished it. We'll be right back. Stick with us for a whole new hour of the Matt Townsend Show.
Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend uh, Show today. Uh, we've got a, a wonderful topic and guest um, with uh, the book titled The Index Card, Why Personal Finance Doesn't Have to Be Complicated. And the author is Helene Olson. You know, tax season is coming around the bend again. And are there times that you struggle with your own personal finances? It's easy for personal finance to get lost and disorganized in the wash of business and our, just our everyday life. So our guest today, uh, Helene Olin, is uh, going to give us the solution. She wrote about it in the book called The Index Card, Why Personal Finance Doesn't Have to Be Complicated. And she joins us now from New York. Helene, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Hi, good morning. What a, what a fun uh, idea, really, the idea of being able to get kind of everything we need to know about our finances on an index card. How did it, how did it come to be an index card? Well, this is a great story. Um, a few years ago, I wrote a book about, uh, called Pound Foolish um, um, about the personal finance industry and how it had sold us on many things that weren't very good for us as a way around um, dealing with things like income inequality and income stagnation in our unstable workplace, right? Right. And I did this podcast with um, Harold Pollack, a professor at University of Chicago, who you might notice yeah. is my co-author on yeah, the right. card. And at some point during the um, – it was actually a blogcast. Sorry about that. At some point during the interview, which was an hour because we had a blast and we just kept going and going, he said something along the lines of, well, truthfully, everything you need to know about personal finance can be put on an index card. And we agreed on that and laughed and moved on. But a number of people who were listening to this um, blogcast were actually kind of fascinated by that. Mm. And they began to write to Harold and say, you should do that. So Harold, without much thinking about it, um, took a card, took an index card from his daughter's knapsack. His daughter was in high school, grabbed a Sharpie, wrote down some notes from our interview, some things he had learned in life, and put it up on the Internet. And then it went viral. Oh, wow. And people started writing, both of us. Yep. And at some point we said, we really need to put all of this in a book. We can't keep answering people one by one by one. It's right. a little nuts. So um, we work, we have jobs. Um, <laughs> so we ended up writing a book and um, had a blast doing that too, I should say. Well, and then I'm sure your writing on the card got smaller and smaller because you had so many more ideas. And in the end, you came up with what? How many? Like nine? It's, nine it's principles? Nine. And Yes. And we changed it slightly from the original card. Right. But um, it's still the basic card and the base, same basic advice. Well, um, I mean, that to me, it should be that simple, right? I guess at the core. Right. Well, that was always my point. It's that, you know, this stuff is very easy, and we have this huge industry that has grown up that basically sells itself by saying, you know, we have a secret way for you to get around the economy, and we have a way that, you know, if you just turn your money over to us, this stuff's really complicated, and we understand it, and we'll help you prevail. And in fact, um, not only are they often not helping you prevail, in many cases, they're making your position worse. Right. And I guess they like it complicated so you can go to them. You have to go to the experts. Right, because you're too scared to deal with this. It's just too complicated. You don't know the answer, but they do. So true. Oh, it's so true. And so what are some of the principles? Maybe just teach us uh, some of the principles that, that that you think stand out. Well, the first, it starts very basic. You want to build your foundation, right? Right. So your foundation is is to try to save between 10 and 20% of your income. And we realize you're not going to do that overnight. Um, Nobody's going to do that overnight. 
Um, so we simply say, if you can't do that, and by the way, if you can, start now, okay? But if you can't, you know, even starting small, just get into the habit. And the best way to do that is to make it automatic. Don't, you know, don't rely on yourself to look at your check paycheck every week and say, oh, I can put this amount in savings, mm-hmm. that amount in savings. Simply arrange it online. It takes seconds of your time. Um, trust me on that one. So in your online banking, like immediately have it take, once the deposit's made in, have it take 10% out. Right, or what you feel you could afford. Yeah, because right. the second piece is pay down your credit card bills. Um, we're not saying you should pay down all of your debt. Um, you don't need to consider your mortgage at this point, right? Right. But it, your credit card bills and other high-interest debt, should you have, say, payday loans or something like that, is you, you're going to be paying out more in interest on that than any gain you're probably getting from an investment at this point, and certainly from your savings account. Should, should I pay – but you're really saying uh, cr- start creating the savings even before paying down my debt. Well, the issue is is you need at least an emergency fund. Yeah, right. 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 Because these things – things come up over and over again, right? There are small emergencies that just happen regularly, like whose car doesn't occasionally you know, have an accident or get you – know, break down somewhere or you know, who doesn't um, get sick and need to go to a doctor. Have money put aside for that. That shouldn't come as an emergency, right? Right. And then, of course, greater emergency, lose a job, right? <laughs> have to take, get sick and have to take three weeks off of work instead right. of two days. These are, and your life will be better if you can put money aside for this stuff. There's no question about it. And so once I get my fund, kind of an emergency fund, then go pay off my credit cards and then, um, and just, I guess I assume start with the highest interest first, pay off the highest interest debt first down. Right. And take a good look at your credit cards and see what the highest interest rate is and just put, you know, pay the minimum on everything else, put all your money towards and uh, towards that one. And then when that one's paid off, go on to the next lowest interest rate. Um, And trust me, this will save you hundreds, if not thousands of dollars over the course of the time you're doing this. Oh, and Um, what? That, what, you know, there's a very popular method out there that says people should pay down their smallest debt first. Yeah, and right. And while I respect that, because it does give some people motivation, it in fact just leaves you in a much bigger hole. Um, and ultimately, you need to minimize what you're paying out in, in, in interest rates. Right. And, and so your, yours is more just hit, hit the giant, hit the big interest rates first, knock those down, um, and then – then I mean, what a joy that would be to see one of your big credit cards finally paid off. I I think the feeling is intensely happy, intense, intense happiness. Oh, what a relief! And then um, the other thing that you talk about in your is your rule number three is max out your four hundred one k. Talk to us about that. I think a lot of people are, I don't know, afraid of the stock market today. Well, I mean, th- this is more an issue of. Um, first of all, um, we can talk about the fear of the stock market in a second, but first of all, 401k, this again goes back to the industry, which often tells you simply put the match in their 401k, you know, your employer match, put mm-hmm. the amount up to get that, and then invest in an IRA, which, um, you know, supposedly will offer you greater choices in investment. In fact, you don't need greater choices in investment. <laughs> You need a simple low-fee index fund that comes with low expenses, and that's most likely to be found in your 401k. 
And this is money that you're not using for, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 years, and it can grow tax-free so that, um, you know, which is true of an IRA as well. But because of the low fees, it is an immense gain to put your money in there. Yeah, and it seems like it's it's taken out before you, you knew you took it out. Right, and you don't see it, and that's the main thing. It comes straight out of your paycheck. You don't even know it's missing. Oh. Um, and as for the stock market, I realize it is not in a great place right now. In fact, I am writing a column about that as I speak. But um, keep in mind, um, you're not investing for tomorrow. You're investing for 10, 20, 30 years out. Right. And the thing I always tell people, because the argument is, is, well, will the stock market perform like it has in the past? And I can't answer that, and neither can anyone else, despite what they tell you. Um, what we know is the stock market has you know, gained about an average of 8% a year after inflation um, over the past several decades. And that if you go off and invest on your own or you try to do better than that, um, you might. But the chances are really, really good you won't. Um, only 1% of us actually have the ability to do that. So as I always like to put it, um, you know, just to get this really negative, right? The stock market can go down by 20%, but your alternative can go down by more. Um, it's not like some automatic thing where you avoid a bad investment and you find a better investment. Right. Chances are incredible you'll find a worse one. <laughs> it's true, though, huh? It, it, it's sad but true. People don't like to contemplate this. That's it's, why um, I get to write this book, right? I contemplate this. It's so true. Um, okay, let's do this. Let's take a break. We're speaking with Elaine Olin, who is um, the author of the book um, that is – you know, it's it's basically the index card, why personal finance doesn't have to be complicated. Folks, it could, the principles can fit on, on an index card. Now, you might need 220 pages of explanation in the end, but um, I think it's a book worth, uh, worth looking into. We'll take a break, come back more with Elaine and learning more of the principles that fit on the business card. Stick with us, folks. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. I came to Southern Virginia University to wrestle, but I stayed because of the education and the experiences that I had. For me, it goes down to the professors who care. Because of the personalized education that I received, I was able to start a business. As I did that, my professors understood the challenges and struggles that I had, but they provided me with the knowledge and information I needed to succeed. My name is Colter Sims, and I'm a knight. A team of aeronautics researchers are feeding ash to engines and standing back to see what happens. This is Innovation Now, bringing you stories of revolutionary ideas, emerging technologies, and the people behind the concepts that shape the future. Within the past five years, volcanic eruptions have caused major backups in air transportation, costing airlines more than $1 billion due to canceled flights. So aeronautics researchers from across the country have gathered at NASA Armstrong Flight Center in California to find a solution to the unavoidable hazard. A rig called the Spider is used to blow ash into C-17 and F-117 engines. 
To reduce risk, these tests are conducted on the ground under controlled conditions. The ash degrades the engine, allowing the researchers to see in real time what's happening and how well the engine's monitoring systems are working. The tests will answer questions about how close pilots can fly to volcanic plumes and validate new sensors that could alert pilots to changes in engine health in time to prevent damage in flight. Until researchers have the answers they're looking for, the planes will continue their diet of volcanic ash. For Innovation Now, I'm Jennifer Pulley. Innovation Now is produced by the National Institute of Aerospace through collaboration with NASA and is distributed by WHRV. Visit us online at innovationnow.us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, today we're speaking with Helene Olin, who uh, is the author, co-author of the book The Index Card, Why Personal Finance Doesn't Have to Be Complicated and uh, she's walking us through some fairly basic ideas of um, your own personal finance, like try to save. How about that? 10% um, to 20% if you can. Pay down your credit card bills. She's now been talking to us about um, some of our stock market choices. Rule number four, um, uh, Helene, is the um, is the principle about what stocks to buy, what stocks not to buy. Talk to us about that. Well, thank you shouldn't be buying individual stocks at all. Um, we talk about this. We talk about this quite extensively in the book. Um, but very short is again, you, you're not going to have the ability to outguess the market. That you know, we all have this idea in our head: we're going to pick the next Google or we're going to pick the next Facebook. Um, frankly, most of us pick the next AOL <laughs> or the next um, store that goes belly up. Um, we're not really good at this. Um, we're simply not. Um, and by the way, let me make this really clear. When I say we, I mean everybody. Mm-hmm. I mean you, us individually, um, your uncle or aunt who reads the Wall Street Journal every day. I mean the financial advisor at the local brokerage house. I mean the people running multi-million dollar or billion dollar mutual funds and investment groups. Um, it, it's human. We, we just can't do it. Again, the surveys show this time and time again. We're just not going to pull this off. Um, very few mutual funds or um, even hedge funds ultimately beat their benchmarks. Um, it's simply astonishing that more people don't realize this. And yet we all try. We all try because we're sold on the idea of trying. Right. Um, and in fact, all you need to do, really should do is find a couple of index funds that are properly diversified, and we talk about how to do that in the book. And um, basically put your money in, set it on automatic, and get on with your life. You'll enjoy it a lot more. Because the, the index fund would then have a more balanced portfolio. Well, it's, it, it would be a, no, a couple of different index funds, right? Yeah, right. You know, one with bonds, one with the overall stock market. Um, um, but you then know, you're saying, but then get on with it. Go live. Get on with it. Right. I mean, you know, move on with your life. Um, you're not going to pull this. You're not going to outsmart this. So there's no reason why you should be trying. There's no reason you should be spending your time obsessing about this. So if I'm maxing out my 401k, they're already investing investing in index funds, aren't they? Well, not necessarily. Okay. Um, you have to go in there and select. Right. Um, and one thing is, and that's really important, because usually what happens is if your 401k is automatic, 
you'll be simply put in a target date fund based on your age. That's a fund that is designed to replicate a smooth, you know, glide mix of stocks and mm-hmm. bonds towards retirement, right? Um, there's one, there's two things with these. Um, first, um, every target date fund has a different formula. Um, again, there's no magic formula to this, right? It often involves stock picking. That means it runs up your trading costs, and it eats into the investment principle. Mm. Um, and the, these costs come out year in and year out, no matter how much the stock market gains. And the, the amount you lose to this is simply astonishing. You know, you hear the a person hears the difference between, you know, seven tenths of a percent and two tenths of a percent, and they think, oh, who cares? Yeah, whatever. I'm trying, right? In fact, these differences like have the ability to eat up about a third of your overall gains over the cost of your life. I mean, it, it's a lifetime of investing. It, it's really a mind-boggling number when you look at it. This is why I think we feel like we need an expert, though. Right, and you don't. Yeah, right. Thing. All you need to do is read the index card, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and you'll find this out. You don't need an expert. That's not to say, by the way, financial advice is all bad. Um, I should point out. It's good to keep you on a steady path. It's good to, you know, keep you investing when you're scared. But this is another key point of the index card. You need to make sure you see somebody who has a duty to act in your best interest. Um, that's something called the fiduciary standard. Yeah, explain that. Really, yeah, this is hugely important. Um, most people think when they seek financial advice from anybody, they're like it's like going to a doctor. They have a duty to act in your best interest. You know, they have a financial Hippocrat- Hippocratic oath, right? And this is simply not true. Um, in fact, the vast majority have no such interest. Um, and the only way you're going to know this, because they can still charge you for the advice, is, is if you flat out ask if they have a legal duty to act in your best interest. Hmm. Um, and in fact, many people suggest putting it in an email or getting them to sign something so that somebody can't just pull a fast one and say something like, when would I never act in your best interest? Right. Which of you might course. notice doesn't answer the question. Yeah. Um, and this way you also have it in writing. Interesting. And I mean, here, let me give you a scenario, Helene. I just had the funeral of my mother-in-law and we have a very trusted, actually almost beloved financial advisor who was there at the funeral and we all know him and love him and his entire staff was there. Um, he was almost more of a family friend, even though he's never really been a family friend. He is the financial advisor. And yet, I, you know, you can ask him anything. And he does have this fiduciary standard. And right. it, it changes the game because, uh, I mean, I have people in my own life that sell insurance and I hear them coming around every quarter or whatever. And they almost look for another handout. And I so I. I sat there and it didn't dawn on me till I saw this other man and I thought that's the difference of what – that's the kind of advisor you want in your life. Somebody that doesn't make it transactionally but right. that's, that's in the long haul with you. Right. I mean the thing is that people do need to get used to um, because the, many advisors make it out like this is at no cost to you, right? Right. But that's not true. You know, somebody's paying the bill and if it's not you – You've got to wonder what's going on. Now, in fact, one of two things are going on. Either the, the financial company selling, marketing the product is paying the bill, which means advice is going to be weighted in their interest, right? Right. Or second, the money's coming out and you don't even know it. And that happens too. Um, there's no free lunch out there. I mean, there's a reason this cliche became um, a cliche. And it's really important to 
keep an eye on these things. Oh, there's no free lunch. Darn it. Um, yeah, but again, as the human nature in us, we, we try to keep looking for the free lunch, the big right. deal, the, the big hit. And you're, it sounds more like you're saying, just chip away at it. Just right. keep exactly. chipping. I mean, when, I, when I wrote Pound Foolish, I interviewed um, one of the big marketing people. And he told me, uh, he said, everybody wants a free lunch. He said, I stayed at this big hotel, um, you know, on the, on the luxury floor, you know, the penthouse, you know, special, you know, the VIP floor. And it was all CEOs, and they put out a free breakfast, and it was a mob scene. <laughs> he said, everybody wants a freebie, you know. And right. that's, by the way, so another bit of advice. You get something in the mail that says, come to, uh, you know, come hear a financial presentation at your local favorite restaurant. Yeah. Skip it. Don't do it. Okay. You're going to be sold there. something. You're going to be sold something, and chances are 99.9 percent this is something that's not in your best interest. Huh. That's great. That's great advice. Uh, you just made a lot of people mad, but that's great advice. Um, the the rule number eight that you talk about insurance. Make sure you're protected. What insurance do we need? What's too much? Okay. First and most important, um, you need health care. You need um, housing insurance. You need auto insurance. What's too much is with, um, you know, auto and housing, you don't need a $500 deductible, right? This is not something you're using every day. Um, you know, at minimum, you know, it, with, with, with an auto, you know, $1,000. Yeah. With a house, it really depends on your budget and the value of your house. I mean, I, that, that can be – my number would be so high because I'm based in New York. You guys would laugh. Right. Heard it. So, yeah. um, you know, we pay what you pay for a four-bedroom house for a closet. I know. Um, it's so sad. <laughs> um, but the point is, is that's insurance you don't use. But you need it, you know. Things do happen, and that's really – it's important to be protected. And I know health insurance is, you know, ridiculously expensive. I think we can all agree on that. Um, but if somebody gets ill, you could be out a lot of money right. really, really fast. I mean, there is no way to sign up for insurance on the spot if you're in a car accident, say. There just isn't. Um, even with Obamacare, right? Even so with Obamacare, everybody okay. get that in your head. Yeah, don't get, don't have that idea, right? You get hit, you're crossing the street, and something happens. No, it doesn't work that way. You'll be out twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars before you, you know, you even wake up. Basically. Oh yeah. Is so, is um what what amount of life insurance should I carry? Is that based on my income? What is that based on? It's based on both um, income and what your responsibilities are. If you're 60 years old and your children are grown up and you're not going to be working in five years, you might not need much at all, right? Right, right. And we tell people term, not anything that's an investment scheme. Again, too many, um, too many fees coming out. We go into that much more in the book. Mm. And, um, and then – so in the book too, you'll be able to help us define maybe how much is enough. Right. Okay. And, you know, the other thing we talk about is um, the other insurance that people often don't like to hear about. Right. And that's the government. Yeah. Um, And we're all reliant on that. So, you know, our last rule is that you should support the social welfare system, the, the social safety net. You know, there's this thing where most of us think, oh, I never take money from the government. What is this? Well, in fact, when 
surveyors go out there and ask, actually 95% of us at some point in our lives take money. Right. Um, and it's everything from Social Security to Medicare to unemployment insurance to mortgage deductions. This is all, you know, government um, scaffolding around your life. Um, and we want people to be aware of that. Your financial life as you know it is actually not possible without that scaffolding because there is simply no way for you to save up enough money to replace Social Security or the vast majority of us. Right. And the same for Medicare. Um, and it's really funny because we all have this way of thinking somehow these aren't government programs, right? It's the infamous sign from a few years ago. Get, my, get the government's hands off my Medicare. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, right. Like, who on, where on earth did they think it was coming from? <laughs> well, and um, a lot of people are worried, Helene, that it's not going to be around for them. Okay, I, okay this right. is something I talk about a lot. Um, it's not much in the, in the index card, but that's actually simply not true. Yeah. This is one of the greatest myths out there. Social Security, very, very short Social Security, is not going bankrupt. At current rates, it will only be able to replace 75% of income in the 2030s. But the increases that would be needed to, um, to make it whole are, for the vast majority of us, ridiculously small, talking like you know, less than $100 a year if it was done immediately. And the other thing that would be huge that most people do not realize is um, Social Security stops taxing, taking you know, money out of your income for it at 118500 That's called the payroll tax cap. Um, if they simply eliminated the payroll tax cap, about 85% of the deficit would vanish tomorrow. Wow. Um, people simply have no idea. And the reason they have no idea is because the interests that don't want that money taxed have a lot more voice in Washington and in the public discourse than in people earning fifty, sixty thousand no, exactly. dollars a year. Right. Um, and when people hear this, they are simply astonished. Um, did you know that? No, no, I'd never heard that. Well, I mean, in a way, think about because those people that are making above one hundred and eighteen thousand are still going to draw on their social security. I mean, right. many of them, unless laws are changed. So, and there's no reason for laws to. Be that's right. Why not just allow it? Too. Yeah, allow it to just keep charging above one hundred eighteen thousand. Right. And yeah, and it would totally make sense. And it's simply astonishing to me that people do not realize this. Well, Um, I mean, I guess that's it, because if you start all that money that they want those taxes, that's the Wall Street effect, isn't it? That's why everyone's talking about Wall Street. Right. And um, it's simply astonishing. It is simply astonishing that more people do not know this. Hmm. Um, And I I tend to not reflexively blame media um, as being a part of media. I'm a columnist at Slate, as you right. probably know. But in this case, I really blame the media for this. This should be, whenever there's a conversation about Social Security, this should be the first thing set. Yeah. And, um, and it never even comes up. Well, especially in this election. I mean, is Ber- this seems like what Bernie Sanders would be talking about. Well, he is talking about Does it. Does he bring it up? Um, Ber- Bernie Sanders is talking about it. Um, and Hillary Clinton seems to have indicated she supports it as well, though it's a little bit murkier there. Yeah. Um, and, you know, if you want to know why Donald Trump is doing so well on the Republican side, I can give you a pretty good hint. Did he talk um, about he this? Is, he is not talking about the payroll tax cap, but he is the only one of the candidates who has specifically said he will not cut back Social Security from where it is right now. Huh. The rest of them are talking about, you know, cutting the benefits or raising the retirement age, which is one of those things that sounds like a great idea until you recognize that age discrimination is immense. 
and that most people leave the workforce not because they want to, but because they either get ill, a family member gets ill, or they get laid off and they can't find another job. Right. Um, so, yes, we're all living longer, but we're not all living longer in better health, and we're not living longer um, with jobs available to us. And um, the third thing is people most reliant on Social Security are actually not living as much longer as the people who need it less. Mm. Um, if you have a really nice, high-paying, white-collar desk job um, like you or me, um, our outlook's pretty good. But if you're a manual laborer, your outlook is not so great. Oh, so true. And those are the, those are the people who will suffer the most, who need Social Security the most and will suffer the most from the age being raised. I mean, it really is. It's, it's interesting. You bring it up as like your ninth point. It's but it's it is part of our financial planning, and it needs to be f- part of our. It's also part of our giving, right? I mean, you're. It, it's it's huge. I mean, the majority of elderly people right now, and we're talking about people who we all think of as prosperous, right? Right. Would be living in very straitened circumstances without Social Security. Um, it, it they literally would, uh, and ditto Medicare. People really need to have this banged over their head. Um, and I think it's very easy to forget because most of us don't get a Social Security check where most of us are not over right. 65, right? Yeah. Well, and if people could trust government to manage it and protect it. Well, we can. They I mean, have so far. And, you know, they've protected it a heck of a lot better than our investments on Wall Street have been protected. Think of it that way. No, that's totally true, huh? <laughs> Darn Wall Street again. Back to the Wall Street. Well, we appreciate you, um, Helene. That's, I think it's a, a very uh, – I think it's a well-thought-out book. The Index Card's the name of the book, Why Personal Finance Doesn't Have to Be Complicated. You can find it at all the bookstores. And Helene Olin, thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you for having me on. You bet. Uh, again, you can go to Helene's um, website, uh, HeleneOlin.com, and, and find out more about her, her book, uh, Pound Foolish which was the first book she wrote. She's she's appears everywhere in the New York Times, Salon, Slate, you name it, the Atlantic. She's been in all the big all the big uh, uh, media sources. So she's a great resource resource. We'll take a break, folks. Uh, come back, wrap up this second hour of the Matt Townsend show. Stick with us, folks. We're going to make you rich one way or another. This is the Matt Townsend show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. How are you doing in your finances? It's a tough thing because you don't you don't know what you don't know. And then all of a sudden, some salesman comes and talks to you and like, well, you know, you need to have this kind of insurance and this kind of insurance. and Or how about all of these people that live in a flood zone and they don't even have flood insurance or earthquake? I mean, it's hard. It's hard to know what you're supposed to do. Anyway, uh, let's just go to another subject, because if you think you have it bad, um, (laughs) what do you do if you're the Ohio Speaker of the House and your pastor that's offering the invocation, the prayer, to get the entire Ohio House of Representatives session underway, what if he just keeps going and going and going? going in his prayer. He just keeps offering and praying and praying. Well, things got awkward at the start of Tuesday's session of Ohio House of Representatives 
after the opening prayer uh, by Pastor B.J. Van Amen went past the five-minute mark. House Speaker Cliff Rosenberger took advantage of a long pause and said, Amen, and ended the prayer before it was over. He said, I didn't mean to be rude, and I feel terrible. He said in an interview with the Columbus Dispatch, when I thought it was enough, I I didn't really know how best to do it, so I just said, Amen, (laughs) and away we go. And at one point during the prayer, Rosenberger lifts his head and just opens his eyes. He said, after the pastor talks about King Solomon and David, the speaker saw his opportunity. (laughs) Um, Anyway, since the microphones on the desks of the House members were open mics, one female member could be heard saying, man, that was a sermon. So how how do you end a prayer? Well, you just say amen, even if the pastor's not done delivering it. Oh, it's funny. But there again, they're trying to open it up. Uh, you know, allow a prayer to be offered. So remember that if you're going to offer a prayer for to open legislate the the legislative session, I'd, I'd I'd make it a short one. I have another way to end it. How? Taze it. <laughs> that would end it. Thank you, Pastor. Um. Thank you, Pastor. Well done. <laughs> that, that is one way to do it. Again, uh, we're not having a lot of success on this fundraising effort. We're t- uh, ben and I have been trying to raise some money on the um, on a beja- bedu- bedazzled and bejeweled um, taser series, taser line. Most for- of our support comes from the the fund the helpers over like sixty five. Yeah, yeah, the yeah, contributors over sixty five. The senior, yeah. And we appreciate it. It's just, you know, it's not catching on like we thought it would. Yeah, we wanted it to be a hip new yeah. new tool. Have a hip taser. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter. At Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. You know, we just learned a lot about uh, how the breakups impact us. Maybe it's some of those breakups that are keeping people from wanting to move forward and date anyway. I have a lot of clients that come and talk to me, and they're like, oh, is my is my millennial or my young adult ever going to get married? And, you know, as somebody that looks over, you know, a desk every day from a young millennial, the answer to that is obviously no. No, they're not. It's never going to happen. At least this one's not. At least this one's not. Even if you make all the ice cream in the world, Ben, it still may not happen. But a lot of people are like, that's fine. That's fine. I don't want my kid married yet. You know? Interesting. Uh, we've had we've had some great guests on recently um, that, of course, you, you don't need to push your kid to get married. But there will be a point where you'll be thinking, seriously, are you ever going to get married? When is this going to happen? So we wanted today to, I wanted to spend a little bit of time in the coach's corner talking about marriage. Mowage. And it, when you think about it, it's not always, you know, it's, it's not always that we 
we just are choosing not to get married. I mean, there are a lot of reasons why people aren't dating, aren't getting married. In fact, next hour we'll be we'll be talking to a, an expert um, who works and coaches with coaches singles and, and does everything she can to help them um, create a healthier and and I think happier uh, happier life. But w- there's there's certain things that have to be there, and and if somebody wants to get married. There's four needs I teach that have to be in play. You you, you got to have you got to want four things while you're dating to create I think some movement. The first one is you got to be you got to want to be in the game. Um, and we had uh, a great expert on Brian Willoughby here from Brigham Young University that talked about uh, a few uh, a week ago or so about the fact that so many people are missing the market. They're not even in the dating game. They're just not in it. They may have taken themselves out while they're finishing a program. You know, they're finishing their degree. Many people decide that they're not even going to date seriously until they are older, until they have finished school, for example. Or some will say, I'm not going to date seriously until I'm through my first year of law school or until I'm done with medical school or until I've, you know, until I finish this program or this certificate or I'm back from an internship and the minute you set that that goal in your head that you're not going to do something until then, you may be removing yourself from the game. In the end, you've got to you've got to be available when people are available. And I think a lot of us, uh, and especially, and we're doing them for good reasons. There's a lot of uh, kids that go on LDS missions, and they remove themselves for two years to go on an LDS mission. And they're not in the dating game for two years. Now, many people would say, well, I know, but that's fine. But you'll come back and there's other people to date. Well, except um, a lot of times you date who you know and you date your the people from your cohort, the people from your age group. And when you pull yourself out for an extended period of time from an, an age group and a, and a group of people that you know – you actually might be shrinking or the the size of the market around you might be shrinking as you're out of the game. And you just assume you can inject yourself back into that market and all of a sudden find your partner. But that may not always be the case. Like uh, like Brian Willoughby was teaching us, the ideal age for the happiest marriages, believe it or not, are ages 22 to 25. We've talked about other research on the show that said if you got married at 29 – You'll you'll be the ha- you'll have a good marriage, but the research shows what you'll have is the least likely marriage to divorce. That doesn't necessarily equate to the happiest marriage. Happiest marriages with the least likely chance of divorcing happen between twenty two and twenty five. And again, if you're planning on if you're twenty seven by the time you're deciding to get married, you may be you know out of the market, out of the game. So. There's something going on, obviously, because people are choosing to get married older. Another reason is simply because they they're, they don't necessarily have a pro-marriage role model. For example, uh, their parents are sitting there saying, do not get married young. Don't get married young. Get, just wait. Wait. Get your degree. Once you've got your degree. So even the parents are pushing wait to get the degree. But then parents, if you're pushing your children to wait, then you shouldn't be surprised when they do. Make sense? You can't really have it both ways. Yeah, but you didn't know this guy, Matt. This guy was such a loser. <laughs> you did not know this guy. 
So if you want to promote marriage in your life with your kids and your young adults, then you've got to be a pro-marriage parent. That might also mean you've got to like being married yourself. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. If your kids see that you hate marriage, that might be another reason why these millennials are saying, I don't know if I want to go there. My mom hates it. My dad can't stand it. If you don't make marriage look appealing, then why would we expect people to do it? So one of the benefits of being a millennial today is you, you've you seen how your parents have handled their lives. So that may be one reason you're choosing not to be in the game is you never had a pro-marriage role model. You never had somebody that saw the benefit or the need or the love of it. Another reason um, that uh, we've talked about recently on the show, too, is that you got to want it. And there's a big uh, issue with attachment that they're finding out that your ability to attach to another human being is probably one of the most important skills or tools you've got in your life. Do you feel like, just as you're a listener today, do you feel like you have a really strong ability to connect in and attach in a healthy way to another person? Do you feel like you're healthy about it or do you feel like you're more desperate for them, needy for them? According to the research, uh, some of the latest research that uh, Dr. Vanita Mehta shared with us a while ago is you've got um, about uh, since in the last 20 years, since about 1988, that that people have become more unhealthily um, attached. So 60% of the people today have an unhealthy ability to attach. They don't attach well which was weird because 20 years ago, it was about 50% had an attachment issue. Only 50% had an attachment issue. Today, 60% have an attachment issue, which means only 40% of the people in your dating pool have the ability to, to attach in a healthy way. That might be another reason why people are prolonging marriage. So, and we talked about it, the fact if you if you don't have a strong attachment, then some tendencies you'll have. One thing is to just simply be, you know, um, basically not into wanting to get married. You actually are not pro marriage. You actually you, you don't want to marry a, but you actually don't see a need for it. So you become kind of an anti marriage evangelist. And if you start becoming somebody that doesn't need marriage then that will pretty much ensure you're not going to find somebody that's going to want you. Another thing we do is we get preoccupied. If I am not into healthy attachment, then I might get more preoccupied with my life, my business, my work, my degrees. And I think so some of these kids that are just too busy and they're prolonging their their idea of getting married, they just – it's not that they don't see a need for it. They want to get married. It's just going to happen after they're done with school. So imagine that you're dating somebody like that. That's a hard date. Somebody that doesn't is not anxiously wanting to be with you. Um, and so we'll just wait three more years. Then we cohabitate, and that creates other issues uh, as far as marriage stability. Uh, couples that do cohabitate before aren't happier. They are less likely to get married. They're less likely to to actually make the relationship work. So um, interesting, just interesting stats from the researchers. Um, the other thing that people tend to do if they're not necessarily uh, able to attach in a healthy way, they tend to fear relationships. 
And when they fear them, they're not so excited to get into them. And then the last simple rule is some people uh, just don't know how to date. They don't know how to do it. And they don't have the skills. They don't have the ability. They've never taken a class. They've never read a book. And they've never been good at it by just dating on their own. And it creates problems. So you got to want it. You got to be in the game. You got to have role models that are pro marriage and you got to know how to do it. And if you don't have those things, then it's going to, you're probably going to slow down your path. So, parents, you know, don't just sit there and complain. Sit down and talk to your kids. Is it one of those issues? Are they just not in the game? They're not around people to date. Where do you find a date today if you don't go to a bar? If you're somebody that's not going to go to a bar and drink, where do you find the date? At work? Well, I'm working. (laughs) And they dissuade us from dating at work. Okay? So you can't find them necessarily at work. And if you're done with school or if you're not going to school, it's hard to find a date. And are you a great role model, parents? Have you taught your child, you know, the importance of relationships, the importance of marriage, that they're not disposable, that we don't just throw them away? Anyway, just a little uh, coach's corner for you. Instead of worrying about your child eventually getting married, why don't you just talk to them? Find out what's going on in their life. And uh, be their coach. Be their guide on the side. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, throughout time, our genetic makeup has been programmed to help us survive the world around us. But that may no longer be the case. In fact, the very traits that kept our forefathers alive may actually be killing us today. Diseases like obesity, diabetes, high blood pressure, mental illness, heart disease, and stroke are um, increasingly affecting more and more people. Today, Dr. Lee Goldman, cardiologist and dean of the medical school at Columbia University, joins us to talk about his book, Too Much of a Good Thing, How Four Key Survival Traits Are Now Killing Us. Uh, Dr. Lee Goldman, thank you so much for being with us today. My pleasure. Great to have you. I love this topic of... um, because forever we've we just kind of looked at people that were having some of these medical issues because so many of them seem like lifestyle oriented. We just see them maybe as lazy, as weak. But one of the arguments you're making in your book is that men, many of these diseases are caused by just our traits, our survival traits. So exactly. We are hardwired, if you will, with the same DNA, the same genes that our ancestors had in the Paleolithic era, a time when life was very different than now. Right. There was in short supply. Salt was uh, more precious than gold. Murder was one of the leading causes of death. <laughs> and uh, people bled to death, especially women after childbirth. And so our ancestors had to have genes that protected them from those things. Uh, the good news is that now, for most of us, food is plentiful. Salt is in abundance. Uh, murder rates are actually, surprisingly to many people, at an all-time low. And uh, we rarely bleed to death. Right. So those challenges are no longer the key issues for our survival. But they are they're, – they're still part of our – our makeup, right? So we, so we all of a sudden we have this desire, I guess, to to not 
I mean, our body, not a desire, but our body doesn't want to lose weight. Right. So our, you know, those are no longer the things that kill us, at least in uh, you know, the Western world. But our bodies still have genes that are programmed uh, like they were in the old days. Right. So uh, when food is available, we're genetically predisposed to gorge, eat as much as we can, and store the excess as fat. That was great if uh, tomorrow there may be uh, no food for us, but now that food is, is plentiful, uh, we gain weight. And now 38% of Americans are frankly obese. That means they're more than 30% overweight. Another third are overweight. And uh, our bodies are not built to help us lose weight. In fact, if you try to lose weight, two things happen. One is you get hungrier. And secondly, your metabolism slows down, so you burn fewer <laughs> calories. These are great traits for the Paleolithic era. They're terrible traits for someone who's trying to lose weight in modern America. Right, and, and so talk about the, the kind of the evolutionary trait side of this. You're not going to train – you're not going to create uh, or de- eliminate that trait of evolution for what, 20, 30, 40 – 50,000 years or something? What is the number? What does it take to change evolutionary traits? So these traits have built up in our ancestors over probably 10,000 generations. Right. Uh, They came on slowly, and if they're going to go away, they go away slowly. But see, each of us has some number of random differences in our genes compared with our parents. We've got about 6 billion pieces of DNA information, and each of us has about 40 to 60 of those that differ from our parents. That just happens by random, sort of typographical errors in our DNA. Right. If those typographical errors are good, they spread to our children who outsurvive other people's children and eventually may spread to much of the population. But that only happens if those genetic mutations, if you will, benefit us in terms of survival. The things that are killing us now aren't killing us before we have kids who True. have kids. That's right. So they'll never go away, most likely. Oh, they'll wow. Be here forever. Yeah. Wow. I mean, that is, that's scary. So <laughs> so we've got, we've got a genetic, I guess, predisposition uh, or traits, survival traits that could kill us or, or actual or could save us if the conditions were there. But in reality, they're actually beating us up. And yet our body is going to fight against that. Our body doesn't want to lose weight. So how do you overcome? Well, there, there really are three basic approaches to this. Um, one is people voluntarily change their behaviors. Uh, we eat less in terms of calories, we consume less salt, we exercise more, we meditate, etc. Um, those are certainly nice traits, and some of us have them, but many of us don't. Uh, if those sorts of behavior changes were uniformly successful, 38% of us wouldn't be obese. Hmm. Um, one third of us wouldn't have high blood pressure because we consume too much salt. Uh, 15 to 20% of us wouldn't have depression and anxiety. And stroke and heart attack wouldn't be the leading causes of death. So we already have evidence that behavior change is really difficult. And since we're fighting our genes, it doesn't mean that we're morally weak. It means it's just really, really, really hard. Yeah. So I argue that behavior change is a 
wonderful personal virtue, but unlikely to be routinely successful across the entire population. Hmm. Second is your regulation. Uh, we see some of that in terms of trying to limit the size of sugar-sweetened beverages, uh, put calorie counts on uh, food, uh, limit salt, as has been done in processed foods in Britain. Those things are moderately successful, uh, just as we uh, use smoking bans to reduce smoking rates. Uh, but it's not something that the U.S. naturally uh, tends to endorse. We're the land of the free. Right. So we don't tend to like regulation. Uh, places like Britain uh, are more likely to embark on those sorts of changes. So I argue, as much as this may seem uh, sort of unpopular, that a lot of this is going to come down to, to modern science, finding ways to neutralize some of these genes that we no longer need. And we have some interesting examples of these. There's a gene that is needed to help form LDL cholesterol, the bad cholesterol that predisposes uh, toward atherosclerosis, heart disease, and stroke. In a study in Dallas, uh, they happened to find one woman who was missing both of the copies of this gene that's needed to help make LDL. Uh, her LDL level was 14. Uh, no one had ever seen someone with an LDL level mm. of 14 in America before. She's perfectly healthy. So there's sort of proof of principle here that we all have a number of genes that we don't need anymore. And part of the solution, I argue, is finding ways uh, to neutralize those genes. Now, some people talk about, can we edit our genomes? I'm less enthusiastic about that. But I think that modern science will find ways increasingly to neutralize genes we no longer need, and that will help us uh, offset some of these uh, inherited hmm. traits from the Paleolithic era. Interesting. So just using modern science, pharmaceuticals, or genetic, I guess, testing, and and uh, I guess some or some pharmaceutical intervention to then mitigate the problem. Right. Now, I'm not an apologist for the pharmaceutical industry, please right. understand. But what I am saying is that there may be a variety of ways that we can, they said, neutralize the genes we no longer need. Yeah. You know, in some fancy science fiction world, you could say, well, why don't we edit those genes out of uh, uh, our bodies? Uh, I'm less enthusiastic yeah. about that. I think that would be extremely difficult and raise a whole bunch of other issues. But I think that we, as we identify genes we no longer need, uh, we can come up with ways to, as I said, to neutralize their effects. Interesting. Interesting stuff. Let's take a break. Uh, we're speaking with Dr. Lee Goldman, uh, who is a cardiologist, dean of the medical school at Columbia University, author of the book, Too Much of a Good Thing, How Four Key Survival Traits Are Now Killing Us. And uh, let's come back and, and talk more about some of these traits. For example, this this like almost insatiable love and need of salt uh, has many reaching for a bag of chips or more fries um, when uh, when really, you know, our bodies just needed salt a million years ago to be able to survive. They still do. But uh, now we have a pretty healthy dose of salt in our lives. We'll continue the discussion, folks. Too much of a good thing. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, on the line with Dr. Lee Goldman, who is the dean of the uh, medical school at Columbia University, also a world-renowned cardiologist and author of the new book, Too Much of a Good Thing, How Four Key Survival Traits Are Now Killing Us. And uh, he's been teaching us, man, uh, millions of years of evolution in our uh, system, maybe the cause of many of today's problems, um, you know, everything from uh Overweight obesity to heart cardiovascular issues to stroke to anxiety and depression. You know, these are things that we were actually wired to uh, bring to the ball game. Dr. Lee Goldman, thank you again for being with us. My pleasure to be here. Talk about, uh, talk about for example, one of our historic survival traits has been this, um, this, this love, this need of salt and water. And, I mean, that makes sense, right? Our bodies need salt and water to stay balanced chemically. Um, but we, I guess, are consuming too much salt today. That's, I guess, why our body craves the salt today? Yes, exactly. So back in the Paleolithic era, uh, one of our best survival advantages is our endurance. Humans aren't the fastest runners, but we can run and walk the farthest. Hmm. Uh, and the reason is pretty simple, and it's exemplified by the cheetah. The cheetah, if you put it on a treadmill, will sprint for about a mile and a half, and then its temperature will go up to 107 degrees, and it'll lie down on the treadmill and roll off. The reason is it can't sweat. Because hmm. it can't sweat, its temperature goes up when it exercises until it literally can't go any further. We are the best animal in the world at sweating, and that gives us the ability to dissipate heat and to keep on exercising. To dissipate heat and sweat, we have to have enough salt and water in our bodies, and we have to, have to be able to replace that salt and water as we sweat. Uh, humans have always craved salt. Uh, in fact, uh, salt for much of uh, human history was more valuable than gold. Even the word salary comes from the word salt, because Roman soldiers were often paid in salt. Hmm. We crave salt. We love the taste in our tongue, and our bodies need it. Uh, but... Salt also tends to raise our blood pressure, and in America now, one-third of adults have high blood pressure, and that can be linked directly to their intake of salt. There you have it, <laughs> so, because it's true. Like in the hospital, they might give you uh, a saline solution just to uh, be able to enter, introduce other drugs into your system, or they might give you even, I guess, sugar, lactated ringer or some yeah. other dextrose or some other uh, – you know, some other fluid into your system, and it's usually going to be, I guess, a sugar or a salt or additive. Salt, yes. Yeah. Is so then all of a sudden that increases our blood pressure issues, our heart issues. There's another uh, genetic trait, which is just uh, what you've now linked, um, uh, at least in theory, and I'm sure in reality, to our, uh, to our mental health yeah. anxiety. So in the, as best as we can tell from the archaeologic remains of uh, humans uh, dating back to the Stone Age. Back in that era, about a third of humans uh, died violently, uh, most commonly uh, thought to be killed by other humans. The most common injury was a dent in the left side of the skull thought to be related to some other right-handed person smashing across the head. Uh, when humans began to settle down in the Neolithic era about 10,000 years ago, and farm and raise animals, uh, the skeletal remains suggest that the violent death rate went up to about 25%. So 
thought to be because there's now you know, more to fight over. Hmm. Uh, we think of today as a time when we're afraid of uh, violence and murder and uh, those things, but this is actually the safest time, as best as we can tell, in human history. Fewer people die from murder, violence, and war than ever in human history. Uh, in fact, in America now, far more people commit suicide each year than get killed by murder and war put together. Hmm. Well, we were built to be afraid, afraid of other humans, afraid of wild animals, afraid of falling off cliffs. And uh, you know, that's now the reason why many people have uh, anxiety and, and even panic attacks. But you know, interestingly, we're afraid of the wrong things. So if you look at a little child, the child will naturally be afraid of snakes and spiders. Right. You know, no kids get killed by snakes and spiders right. anymore. They're not afraid of cars. They're right. not afraid of guns. Those are the two leading causes of death in children. So these are hardwired traits that have nothing to do with the things that we actually should be afraid of today. Those fears, as I said, contribute to anxiety and uh, panic attacks. There's another part to this as well, which is when you're faced with uh, a foe, we talk about fight or flight. There's a third option if you're not fast enough to run away or strong enough to fight, and that's to cower and to be submissive and hope the foe doesn't kill you. Hmm. Uh, that submissiveness is sort of the beginning of depression. It's a good way to avoid getting killed. It's a good temporary uh, adaptation, uh, but if it, you don't bounce back, that's what we now call depression. And so many uh, uh, evolutionary psychiatrists believe that the modern depression that we see is really a reflection of that submissiveness, uh, which is an alternative to fight or flight, and when people don't bounce back. Hmm. And depression and anxiety today in modern America are among the leading causes of disability, as I said before, now more Americans, very sadly, uh, commit suicide uh, than are killed by murder and war together. And it's uh, what what I'm hearing is these these what we would say, I guess, today these disorders, these diseases, uh, obesity, diabetes, high blood pressure, mental illness. They also they they seem to be our weaknesses today, and the way we see them in our culture. Th these are all weaknesses. But what you're explaining. Um, is almost more that they're coming from a, a genetic strength. Yes. So exactly. I love exactly. that because it's, it seems like a healthier way to see it. We're not all just a bunch of misfits, broken no, people. Exactly right. This is, and I think this is a very important message for all of us as we think about ourselves, if we have any of these uh, afflictions, and we think about other people. Uh, this is not about self-blame. This is not about looking at other people as though they're somehow morally weak or inferior, these are the way we're built. Right. And we can, to a certain extent, offset them. And some of us are luckier than others in terms of how strong some of these genetic traits are. But uh, I'm really trying to get us away from uh, uh, what I'll call uh, uh, moral judgment of ourselves or each other to understanding better how this is, this is the way we're built. Do, do you see that culturally? Um, because I guess we're just barely opening up to these ideas as being strengths, right? But culturally, we we might we we don't seem to handle it well. Like you like you brought up, there's three options: voluntarily change, 
which will happen with maybe a third of uh, of our is that what you're saying? Basically, a third will be able to just choose to change their behavior. Yes, yeah, so, I mean, again, some people are more successful than yeah. others. Regulation um, is the other one, which would be, I guess, we start creating better guidelines, maybe more government pushed regulation. Yeah, 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 again, this is this is intrusiveness into things that people often think are you know, things that you know, government shouldn't tell us what to do, um, and. But in places where they've done it, they tend to be at least modestly successful. Hmm. And and then, too, maybe just the acceptance of allowing science to help bridge the gap. Yes. And that's, again, because, as we discussed earlier, and as you pointed out so nicely, we're, our genes aren't going to evolve out of this. Right. This is not going away. <laughs> And I mean, and and yet, I I really love the idea that it's a strength. Um, I because I mean, I I know family members that have heart issues, and um, you know, a lot of times people might make it about character, like just don't eat salt, <laughs> just pull yourself up and don't eat salt. And but two, and again, you, we're not determined either. You know, I don't believe in determinism per se, but it's you're definitely going to be influenced by this these genes. Yeah, and, it, and, it, and it's hard. Yeah. Uh, uh, what we see interestingly here in, in America is that people who are relatively more affluent sometimes have the uh, the wherewithal to do somewhat better with some of these issues. Uh, but in most parts of the world today, especially the developing world, these problems are uh, often seen uh, most in uh, the more affluent, mm. where people now have increasing access uh, you know, to food and salt and to a leisure lifestyle. Uh, so in many parts of the world, you know, the people who are most afflicted with these things are, in fact, the more, uh, the more well-to-do. Is there... Um... Like I have a relative that too is a cardiologist and uh, retired, um, but the healthiest eater I've ever seen, the healthiest, I mean, exercises two hours a day, loves life, is, you know, mentally engaged, does a lot of great stuff, and yet um, went in for some random um, exam that ended up finding out that he needed his, uh, he was, I think he was having an appendicitis, He they found um, stones in his gall, stones were having a problem, but then he also found plaque in his arteries. Yeah. And as a cardiologist, that was like the most offensive thing, <laughs> especially after eating, you know, after eating seeds and just grains his entire life. So there, there is a point too where it's just you are what you are. It's just are, so yes. So clearly, better habits uh, reduce the risks of some of these things, uh, but. We see people who uh, have uh, all the right habits, if you will, uh, but who still, on a genetic basis, uh, develop atherosclerosis and heart disease and stroke. Hmm. Uh, you can do something. I'm not saying we can't. We, we, certainly we can reduce those risks substantially with a better diet, better exercise, et cetera. Uh, but this is built into our genes. And... Uh, if all of us had that LDL of 14 that I described before, right. then we may never have heart attacks. But most of us don't have LDLs like that, even if we're vegetarians. Mm. I mean, it does. it is what it is, and I guess. But studying the person with the LDL of 14, all of a sudden, 
and science might be able to help us replicate it. Exactly. Yeah, and, and move us there. Exactly. And again, I look at that also sort of as a proof of principle, because it, if something that is uh, so clearly associated with the heart disease uh, can be potentially neutralized so dramatically, uh, it, as a proof of principle, indicates that we should ultimately be able to find uh, yeah. that series of genes that cause high blood pressure and uh, know which targeted therapy will be best in, in each of us to bring blood pressure down and to offset that genetic tendency. I have Ultimately, so... someday the same thing will hopefully be true for anxiety and depression. Yeah. No, totally. And, I mean, again, we had some researchers on talking about anxiety and depression and how they don't even know what it is. I mean, they know what it is, but they don't know what causes it right. exactly. And, and yet... Right. And they... One of the reasons here is I think as we see with obesity and uh, high blood pressure, uh, these are not single genes. Mm-hmm. Now, we didn't all get here because everybody's ancestor had exactly one mutation that did this. Every time a beneficial mutation arose anywhere in the world that tended to help you store more food as fat, tended to help you hold on to your salt, it was beneficial. Right. And across the world, there were multiple, multiple, multiple different mutations in different parts of the world. And ultimately, most of us have many of those those genes. Uh, it's not just you know, one single event. It's multiple events over 10,000 generations. And what that means is there is no single magic bullet. Mm. So the anxiety gene or the depression right. gene or the high blood pressure gene or the obesity gene. There are many of them, and most of us have a number of those genes, each of which contributes. Mm. Which, again, I guess is why the diseases, Alzheimer's, all these diseases they're trying to figure out, they're complex and complicated by multiple genes. Exactly. Interesting. Um, what would you say, just as we wrap up, uh, what's, the, what's the one thing that you would love uh, the listener to hear and the, and the reader of the book, Too Much of a Good Thing, what, would, what do you want them to walk away with? I think – to understand how you know, our current health challenges are a reflection of the beneficial genes that kept our ancestors alive so that we are now the people who are here rather than the, what would have been the hypothetical descendants of the ancestors who didn't make it. Yeah. Uh, and that's all wonderful. Uh, but it gives us also uh, a challenge that those genes are sometimes a mismatch for the modern world and that through a combination, varying combinations in different individuals of behavior, regulation, and medication, uh, we can address those things. But if we just leave them alone and ignore them, uh, they'll kill us, but they won't kill us quickly enough that they'll save future generations. (laughs) Yeah, right. It's prolonged, so it'll just keep killing us. Yep. Interesting. Dr. Lee Goldman, thank you so much for your time and your uh, your great insight. My pleasure. Thank you. Honored to have you. Again, uh, Dr. Lee Goldman, um, cardiologist, world-renowned cardiologist and dean of the medical school at Columbia University. And the book, Too Much of a Good Thing, How Four Key Survival Traits Are Now Killing You. Isn't it interesting? Our strengths become our weaknesses and our weaknesses become strengths. Oops, the, uh, when, you, when you look at it and you think that uh, 
the 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 stronger we get, the future problems we could have, the future problems need to be evaluated and, and fixed. And uh, that's the power of the human is to adapt. We'll take a break, friends. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us, hoping to help you live longer on the show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. A uh, little coach's corner for you here. Isn't it interesting that the the strengths become the weaknesses? So, uh, over evolution of the ma- of the body, we we needed certain traits to survive, and the body learned. And you know, if you were able to survive long enough to procreate and have children, those genes could be handed down. And now look at the curveball we've got because. We were able to run and sweat and, you know, rehydrate. Our body started craving salts and water and fluids. Now, all of a sudden, that has turned into, hey, let's go get some fries and a Diet Coke. (laughs) Not good. Or fries and a Coke. And now, all of a sudden, your brain loves the sugar because it wants as much sugar on board as it can get. Your brain loves the salt. And now... We have to deal with it. It used to save our lives, and now we don't need to chase an animal and run and sweat and perspire for hours. So um, how do we handle it now? Do you know how many times I've had people say, well, I mean, I know I've got this physical problem. I mean, I know it. I know. I've been anxious and depressed my entire life. I know it. But I don't want to get medicine. I don't want it. But what you're battling isn't just a weakness. You're battling evolutionary genes that are in you that have made you be a really uh, maybe tense, anxious person so you wouldn't get you know, snuck up on by a wild animal or a predator. You have that worry. That's in you. That's not going away. And so – as the good doctor told us, you can either regulate it away you know, by having more regulation on what we can do, what we can't do, more regulation on our mental health industries. Or we could also just, I guess, use behavior change, which I have a lot of people want to get over anxiety, but they don't know how and they don't get therapy and they don't read books about it. Or eventually you're going to need to let science in. Somehow we need to break down a little bit, I think, of the belief that science is against us instead of science maybe there to be the valuable bridge to to bridge our our past and our future. I mean, and a lot of the people are God fearing people that you know they don't they don't think they need medicine and drugs to fix something. But God also gave you science, right? He also gave you you know insight, the ability to learn and to read and to think. He gave you choice and agency. So if we're going to, you know, invoke God into the argument about how we handle our evolution and our realities, then let's involve him in everything. There are scientists that are deeply prompted and moved by a God. So let's make choices and let's not do it at the expense of our health. We'll take a break, friends. This is the Matt Townsend Show, hoping to help you live longer on the show. 